0: This is Residence 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How are you doing? I'm Nick Henning. Oh, blimey, sorry. I was a DJ then for a minute. It, sorry. A, it happens to me occasionally. I used to work for commercial radio years ago. And then actually the BBC. Yes, they had me, the lout, and my auntie babe. So every now and again I slip into the... Stop it, stop it, stop it. It's literary London anyway. Thank you for your company. I am Nick Hennigan. And uh, we're going to stick with local authors. And of course, with the lockdown, the London Book Fair didn't happen. But one of the events that did happen in West London was the Chiswick Book Festival. Now, you know, we've already been there a couple of times, haven't we? Oh, yes, we have. And uh, uh, there's a great bunch of people. It's arranged by Torrin Douglas, who's a, a force majeure of, uh, of West London. And next time, I think next week, we're going to be talking to Torrin a bit again about him and his uh, background and uh, his kind of history and his love of West London and why he maintains, and in fact, not just him, it's some of the national newspapers, Chiswick is the most writerly place, not only in London, but quite possibly the United Kingdom. Part of the reason is because they've only got—they've sorry—they've only got—they've already got two Nobel Prize winners that uh, used to live in Chiswick. But more about that later. So I went along with my electric handbag because it was in a pub, <laughs> you know. The Temptations of Literature, and uh, I recorded most of the evening. And we've already heard from the first uh, gang. Uh, The the event was actually uh, what they call their local author night. And it means that writers who have been published in West London come along, and they have two minutes to talk about their book before the Horn of Doom, which is a kind of adapted car horn. Honks them off after two minutes. It's, I suppose, the equivalent of the shepherd's crook in stand up comedy. But it was a good night. um, And so let's go back there. Let's relive the night. The festival is obviously over, but I'll give you details of their website and how you can find out more if you want to know. Let's go west, young man and woman.
1: Without further ado, the man
2: that's going to lift the microphone because I'm far too short, please welcome Jim Sitch. That's mission accomplished. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow authors, my name is Jim Sitch and I'm here to talk about my book. Donald Trump and me. My diary is recording the four wild years of an American president. Five years ago, in 2016, we lost David Bowie, George Michael, and Prince. And there was a vote to see whether we'd stay in Europe or not. And in 2016, I looked on aghast as we watched Donald Trump, a man with no political or military history, and whose main claim to fame was being the American Alan Sugar. Uh, Run for the 45th President of the United States. After his victory was confirmed, several commentators suggested that he might actually be assassinated within the first three or four months. And I took it upon myself to put him down in history. I wrote my first diary entry on Friday, the 20th of January, the day before the official inauguration, um, and then carried on writing. A daily diary entry, quotes from Donald Trump and other people for the next 1,462 days. The entire four years of Donald Trump's presidential tenure. Now, I'm going to ask people who read this book to remember this. Written into these 85,000 words, consider whether any of his actions, words, and deeds can be applied to any of his predecessors. It's a big book most of it in it. The book is packed full of very memorable and sometimes not always flattering quotes from people like George Clooney, (laughs) Robert De Niro, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Johnny Depp. There are many more. Many of the diary entries are extremely prescient and none more so than this one. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> four more years
3: And the words of Barbara Windsor, get out of my <laughs> uh, So,
1: Jim, lovely, we're just going to have to ask you individually afterwards what those words were or, the book. or, or buy, the buy the
4: book
2: there's
1: a bit of a problem with buying the book
2: the, the book isn't on sale tonight, yeah. it's an ebook out next week, and we'll be out as a paperback in two weeks. Really? Okay.
1: Uh, and Jim, do, do you care to tell us
2: why the book isn't on sale tonight? <laughs> the book was due to be on sale tonight, but my first batch had a spelling error, where Mr Trump's name was spelt... Tom. my <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. to final president. Sorry. That's definitely
5: what you, you've given you far too much now. Um, next up, please, Kate Mikhail. Good evening. Um, Teach Yourself to Sleep An Ex Insomniac's Guide, is published by Little Brown. And as the title suggests, I was an insomniac, but I'm not. Anymore. Quality sleep makes you healthier, happier, and live longer. Yet, sleep deprivation is skyrocketing, and many of us are completely disconnected from our sleep wave sidebar. I started delving into the world of sleep about five years ago, when I was reading a book written by my great-great-uncle, who was fascinated by the mind-body loop, and how our words and thoughts impact our body, our health, and our behaviour, including our sleep. It inspired me to look at sleep from a very different perspective in the hope that I could sort out my chronic insomnia. There is no quick fix, I'm sorry to say, but if we can tune into the basic biology and science of sleep and what is going on specifically with our mind, our body, and our sleep-wake pattern, then we can make choices during the day that can transform our sleep at night. The book reveals how biology day-to-day habits, and suggestion shape our sleep, and what we can do to take control. It is packed with eye-opening research, personal experience, um, and a smattering of history that links medical pioneers from the 1920s with those at the forefront of medicine today. There are interviews with some fascinating experts, including a nasa light scientist, And doctors use clinical hypnosis, a.k.a. suggestion, to achieve some startling medical results. Readers are given stress busters to stop stress hormones ruining their sleep. Habit hijacks to swap bad sleep habits for good ones. Sleep scripts to alter mindset and sleep behaviour, with top tips to round up every chapter. In brief, our bedtime routine starts the moment we wake up. Thank you. Thank you. you.
6: Tribulations, temptations, troubled tribes, not aware our time is precious. My time, our time, the time is now. Questions as I went my way, who on earth am I, where am I headed? Moving through the forest and alleys, dark mostly, with sharp flashes of bright. The atmosphere heavy and other times fresh, airy and light resisting that familiar tribal tug, jammed in my head, thrusting me back to moments gone. Jerkily, I come out of its temporary trance, beckoned by the piercing light, I go on. My time is precious. My time is now. Time to galvanize. Thank you. The poems, prose, and illustrations um, in the book are a personal reflection of my life uh, through my lens as a British Asian woman who grew up in Yorkshire. And I hope that the writing in this book not only soothes your soul, but helps ignite a spark of fire of transformation, allowing you to discover your own impetus. I would like to finish with a quote from William Blake, who has been a huge inspiration to my writing. And it goes, no bird soars too high if he soars with his own
7: Mark I'm here to talk about my language learning children's books. Um, the thing that I love is that expression, uh, they really spoke my language. I love it because it gets to the connection that you have when you speak another language. It doesn't matter about ordering stuff. What I'm really into is that connection you get with another person when you can speak a little bit of language. What's magical about it is you don't need to speak very much in order to have that connection. So what I want to do is have kids have the ability to get really excited about a language. Now, how do you do that? I was in TV, I wrote kids' TV shows, but my inspiration for this book came when I was smuggling cauliflower into my children's mashed potatoes. <laughs> 25% is the maximum, no more than 25%, and they can't taste it. So, smuggling, how do you smuggle language learning into a story? So that is my secret. Here, here you have the fabulous Lost and Found and a Little French Mouse. 50 or 60 different languages it's in currently. Um, In Waterstones, you can get French and Spanish, but all the other ones are on the internet. Um, And what I really wanted to do was to give kids a chance to read a story and be a detective and figure out stuff that would make them smile. I don't really care about grammar and vocab, and you can do all that stuff. What I want is the kids to be able to say something fun like... I have lost my hat, j'ai perdu mon chapeau. And (laughs) say that to somebody who speaks French, you just see the reaction Mm. on their face. And that spark of creativity, that spark of connection that you only get when you talk someone's language is what it's about. And that, for me, is what can trigger a lifelong love of language. Uh, So yeah, these are the first ones. Um, Sadly, my illustrator got very, very busy with other projects, so I have a new illustrator for my (laughs) next series, (laughs) (laughs) equally wonderful, Lingo Dingo, uh, coming out very soon. Uh, but the other ones are also very charming and they're available in waterstones and all the other languages online if there is a language that i haven't done that you need do tell me i just finished eritrean so <laughs> i'm open to all stuff. <laughs> Thank you, very much. Well,
1: you guys really have been practicing that again was 2 minutes on the dot <laughs> No. Um, yeah. Deeply, impressive. Impressive. Deeply
8: <laughs> Okay, no pressure then. Next up, Helen Batten. Hi, I'm, I'm Helen. I want to introduce you to this saucy lady, uh, Miss Emily Soldy. Imagine it's 1860. You're 22 years old, the illegitimate daughter of of a Clark and Well bonnet Maker. You've married an unimpressive husband in haste and you already have two children. The workhouse is looming. What do you do? Emily got herself singing lessons. She changed her name to Missus Miss Henry. She went into that den of vice, the Music Hall. She became famous for tragic ballads and dressing up as kings and highwaymen until she finally made her break into opera and became the leading lady of London's craze for Offenbach. So far, so good, but not exceptional. What makes Emily different is she then became a producer and director, and then an impresario, setting up her own production company and taking the lease of London's theatres, but always putting herself in the main role. <laughs> she brought Carmen to Britain, she was the Cameron Mackintosh of her time, and her social life was as stellar as her career, Mixing with the great and the good, as long as they were men. (laughs) Still not content, Emily decided to conquer Broadway. She toured the world for the next 20 years, backwards and forwards, across America and the oceans. Australia loved her. Then, catastrophe. Gilbert and Sullivan started writing their very British operas. Emily was outdated, aging and overweight. They called her the very incarnation of vice and unutterably sad and ghastly. So, she reinvented herself as a journalist, and for the next 11 years, wrote a weekly column about whatever she liked, Churchill, suffragettes, hemlines. Emily had that rare thing for a Victorian working class woman, a public voice, and she used it fearlessly. In 1896, she published a novel- <laughs>
4: Josie Perry.
9: So we've just had the Olympics and the Paralympics. What did all of those athletes have in common? They were obviously phenomenally physically fit, but actually they all also were incredibly mentally fit. They all have sports psychologists. They all come to people like me. And what my book does, I can, *The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness*, is give exactly those skills to teenagers so that they can do the same thing in their sports. Whether it's about building up confidence, having more motivation, handling horrible setbacks. And one of the most common, popular chapters, are about emotional control and handling nerves. And we all have to handle nerves. Whether it's having that (laughs) thing, being blown (laughs) up after two, two minutes or whether it's having to give a presentation at work or do a big competition or take our driving test. So I thought tonight I would do one of the techniques in the book with you guys if you're all up for that. So if you could close your eyes. I would love you to breathe in hot red air through your nose for four, three, two, one and breathe out cool blue air through your mouth for six, five, breathing. The reason we do it is that when we get sitting around like now, we probably breathe about 12 breaths a minute. When you're anxious, when you're stressed, when you're waiting for that thing to go off, (laughs) probably up to about 20, 22 breaths a minute and that really changes your physiology. When you're calm, when you do that breathing, you get to about five or six and it makes you feel a lot, lot better. So that's just one of 50 techniques in this book. Um, If you've got any young athletes in your lives, it can be a really good gift for them. Thank Thank you.
10: a woman who's received, I guess, quite a mixed press since her death in 1968. She's been seen as a, a racist, as a bad mother, um, as a vindictive woman. Um, a recent documentary on Channel 4 presented her um, as in a shock, hush tone to someone who had a lesbian relationship, who played nude mixed t- doubles at the tennis court in, in Beaconsfield. Um, Whether wh- wh- these things are true or, or not, um, and actually she, she, she was racist, I think, um, how far the things like a lesbian relationship are true is a bit of a moot point. I, I kind of rather hope it is true. If she enjoyed it, that's great. Um, <laughs> but what the book is about, disappointingly perhaps, is none of these supposedly scandalous things. It's about her career, the career which she started in the 1920s. Uh, a young girl from Beckenham, um, from, from a young middle class family, um, who didn't go to university, um, was a nursery school teacher, but somehow managed to turn herself into a publishing phenomenon in the 1930s and 40s. Became, I guess, the best-selling writer in in, in Britain. Um, And she did this in various ways. Um, She wasn't original, but she had a good knack of jumping on whatever was popular, like boarding school stories, for example. Um, And she was also uh, a woman with tremendous work ethic. So she could produce 10,000 words a day um, on her typewriter. Um, And she did it by... She, she claimed by imagining her characters appearing on a kind of cinema screen in front of her, and she would just type furiously what they did in, in, in front of her. And she would come out of the trance, and she would have produced a book by that, by that time. Um, <laughs> by lunchtime. That. Well, not by lunchtime, but kind of more or less. So she, she had this tremendous career. She was hated by other authors, and the book deals with this. So Alison Utley, who wrote The Little Grey Rabbit Stories, Said that Blyton's books were fit only for the jumble sale. Um, So she had this jealousy and about jealousy from other authors. Let's bring this down here, Brian. Okay. Hang on. Slight change of
4: set. Wait a second.
3: (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
1: And Dobbs.
3: I've got my walking stick, I've got my surgical boot on, so if I were to take a knee, that would take you all of you to get me <laughs> up again before the end of the evening. My book is called Black and White, and I can say here Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Is about a world where black lives certainly didn't matter. And I've tried to create it. It's a place and a time where black boxers were abused, beaten, deceived, cheated, etc. And even official British championships were forbidden to them. Only white was right. Now, the other thing about this time is one thing that really did matter was boxing. Boxing was more popular than football. It was more glamorous. It was astonishingly prestigious, more than the uh, first night at the opera or at the West End Theater. And the coverage was phenomenal. I'll just give you one example. The Times in 1921, for one fight, gave it more coverage than the Times in 1966 gave to the 1966 English football (laughs) win. To the same fight, the New York Times devoted its front page. It then devoted the next 12 news pages, wholly to the fight over 70 different stories about every aspect of it so (laughs) i'm (laughs) not
1: Speaker left. How did that happen already? Um, Ladies and gents, will you please welcome Louise Buffett Dons.
4: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, The Secret War uh, is the third in my Karen Anderson thriller series. Uh, The background uh, we know that China is growing in power and determined challenge the U.S. supremacy, and the U.S. is equally determined to frustrate her ambitions. So the secret war is already well underway between the intelligence agencies of these two great superpowers. Anyway, my story. When Karen's on-again, off-again boyfriend's uncle dies and he's clearing his house, he comes across compelling evidence that his uncle was working for Chinese intelligence and plan to meet his Beijing counterpart uh, on a transatlantic crossing later in the year. So the couple decide to go on the same cruise themselves to get to the bottom of what is a serious biological threat and at the same time resolve their somewhat ambiguous love affair. And for the first 48 hours, all goes smoothly uh, as they search the boat for the elusive Chinese agent um, and then Helen Rogers, a fantasist and fortune hunter, randomly allocated a seat at their dinner table on the first night, is found dead in her bath in her cabin. And she will be one of the first on the crossing. As Carolyn Deruto realise exactly the enormity of what is planned for New York City, and as the body count mounts, she is faced with the challenge of her life. Uh, I wrote this book during lockdown, I love writing it and getting engaged once again in Karen's rather tumultuous, somewhat messy life, (laughs) Uh, and I hope you do so.
1: So thank you, Tom. Yeah. So point number one. Point number two. Um, authors, speakers tonight. Don't forget to come here, please, for your photo. Roger will sort that out now. Point number three. Books are for sale at Waterstones. Yeah. Yeah. want to or not we'll be signing them so um, we've got some tables set up at the back it's very informal just go up say hello to the person that you want to get a book from and get it signed and the only other thing well two more things for me to say one is if you haven't bought tickets to the festival yet why not go and buy them please Uh, it's a magic lineup there's something for everybody and it's it's just such a good fun festival This has been the best local author night we've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I hope hope all of you, despite the horn of doom threatening you, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed having you here. This bar is now closed, but obviously the pub is open. So the evening does not have to end here. Please carry on, enjoy yourselves. Do buy books, do get
0: them signed. And we'll see you all at the festival over the next few days. Thank you. Authors, do they mean me? No, I think not. So the Chiswick Book Festival, www.chiswickbookfestival.net is the uh, website if you want to know any more about it. Depending on when you're listening to this, of course. Um, uh, I think I'm going to find the bar. This is Residence 104.4 FM.